Tomorrow, the Pink Fairies, the Pretty Things, the Aquarian Age, Pink Wind, drummer, songwriter, legend John Older, Twink, as he is known still, soundtracking the counterculture in London and beyond for the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties, and wherever we are now. <laughs> this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. I'm here with my colleague, Paul Hartfield. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Twink. And we've got some builders uh, as well, I think, uh, rumbling away. But our guest of today, the legend that is Twink. The living legend. Living legend is Twink. Welcome, Twink. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to have you, especially because I know you just come back off tour as well. And of course, that is it. I mean, you've played, not never stopped playing. Well, I, I have stopped occasionally. There's a, there's a couple of periods where I did stop in what I call my wilderness years. Oh, uh, let's come back to the wilderness years okay. in a bit. Let's go right <laughs> back to the top. Okay. When did you first pick up a, a set of drumsticks? Well, um, I, f I first picked up a guitar, actually, um, and I started playing skiffle. Um, and then there was this guy um, that came along to a, a skiffle group practice who played much better guitar than me, but he didn't have a guitar. So I gave him my guitar, and I went, moved on to washboard. And from washboard, I moved on to drums. So I would have been about 13 or 14, I guess. Where was that? That was in Colchester, my hometown. And so really, from that washboard and on to drums, you were off, weren't you? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I suddenly became known as a drummer, and I got uh, kind of lots of work. As, as time went on, I kind of played with a few local, local bands. Then I joined... Um, a band, which called, uh, a band that was called Dane Stevens' The Deep Beats. Great band, uh, playing kind of rhythm and blues and, and rock. Great vocalist, Dane Stevens, was, a, was an amazing vocalist. Um, and I joined them. We were, we were, we were spotted by um, a scout for Decca Records who invited Jeff Stevens, the great composer, Jeff Stevens, to come down to see us, who then in turn introduced us to um, Mike Leander, who was a Decca Records producer, who in turn introduced us to um, Roy Tempest, who was a booking agent at the time. So we were off the contract to Decca. We changed our name to the Fairies, which mm -hmm. everyone kind of like thought was a bit strange at the time, but we were kind of so anti-fairy-like <laughs> that it kind of fitted. When you say anti-fairy-like, I mean, well, we, to describe what were you, what were you like? Um, we were kind of hard-nosed, kind of uh, Rolling Stones types, you know. Sharp-suited? Um, sharp, um, yeah, to a, to a degree. We didn't wear any suits, but we were pretty sharp, you know. And you, this is still in Colchester, right? This is still in Colchester, but we moved to London in, in 64. Mm. Because Roy Tempest arranged a, a flat for us in Paddington. Um, he put us on a living wage, which was £15 a week. Uh, he gave us a van to... To, to get us to gigs, to gigs, he paid for our um, hotels and travel expenses. You know, and we were we were doing really well. You know, we had a record out with Decca, and then it all fell down. <laughs> How old were you at the time then? Um, I was oh, when, when I was sixty-five, I was nineteen. So I mean, that's living the dream a bit, isn't it? Right? You 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 know, you're from Colchester, you started playing in a band, and then next thing you know, you're up in London, you're living in Paddington with your mates. Yeah. with a record contract, getting paid a weekly wage. And then Dane Stevens had a serious car accident 
He didn't have a license. He didn't have insurance. There were fatalities involved. So we lost him for a year. He went to, went to jail. <clears throat> and really it was downhill from then on because um, we were never that great again. We did carry on. We got another singer, uh, a guy from Ipswich, a guy called Nick Weimer, who was a singer for, for a band called Nick's Nomads. And, um, but he was just a, like a carbon copy Phil May, if you like. So we became like a carbon copy, um, you know, pretty things. And uh, it was pretty, pretty sad, really. But we did make a couple of records, which I'm proud to say they're, they're pretty good. Um, but we were really, you know, it, it was the end of the road. We should have thrown the towel in before we did. You know? <laughs> Can you describe a little bit about what it was like in London at that time for you, you know? Um, well, for me, it was, it, was, it, was, it was fantastic. I was living in Paddington. Um, I had some amazing friends popping over. Um, some amazing girlfriends popping around. Um, used to go out to the clubs, and, you know, and yeah, we, it, it, it was it was great, you know, meeting everyone. In fact, uh, the Devonshire Terrace. I don't know if you know Paddington very well, but Devonshire Terrace is that there's a, a pub just down the road, um, just a little bit. And Jet Harris used to pull pints in there, you know. So I used to pop in and um, you know, tip tip my Harris. Jet Harris was the original bass player with the shadows uh, you know who who um, I think he got kicked out of the band or maybe he left for some strange reason but uh, yeah and he was pulling pints in the pub which was kind of a bit sad but um, he did get the recognition he deserved you know quite recently just before he passed passed on you know but the but the time was great I mean I was really you know mixing in with a lot of a lot of great people at the time you know lots of uh, there was a lot of camaraderie music you know in different bands and, and musicians you know so I have I was still having a great time but like I said we should have we as a band should have thrown the towel in uh, a lot sooner than we did um one evening I think it was in 60 mid 66 <clears throat> I was playing with the fairies now Dane Stevens had returned to the band at this at this point in time but it was never the same you know the the musical genre was changing Dane had changed, um, you know, and we, we were still making pr pretty good music, but it didn't have the um, the intensity or the, uh, the the showmanship, if you like, because we were a great show band as well that that we had, and we were playing at, we were playing down um, a club called the Café des Artistes um, in Fulham, I think it was, um, and Steve Howe and Keith West, who we'd been you know hanging out with. Um, uh, came down to see me play. I mean, I didn't know that they came down to see me play. I thought they came down to see the band play. They were scouting then, were they, for, for drummer? Yeah, they were scouting for drummer. In fact, I think David Bowie's drummer had sort of sat in with them, but they they didn't get on with him because he always took his lunch. You know, when they were, they were when they were on a going to a show, he had a lunchbox with him, and he didn't share his sandwiches, so <laughs> he, he was out. You know? <laughs> so, hey, so these they, things matter. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so they came down, and then at the end of the uh, the end of the evening, Steve Howe asked me to to join the in crowd. Well, I I mean I jumped at the chance because, like I said, we weren't doing that <clears throat> that great. And you knew about the in crowd, did you? you yeah, did. I knew about them because mm -hmm. I'd been to some recording sessions. Um, I you know I hadn't played with them at that point, but I I'd, I'd been to um, you know meet them their manager, their producer. 
you know, so I was kind of, you know, well in with those guys, you know. And they were, they were a great bunch of lads, you know, great showmen as well. They were, they were fantastic live. Right. I mean, one of the things which uh, I think goes through your career, which has already started really, which seems to, to be a sort of sig- signature of it, is that you're moving amongst a community of sort of like-minded musicians because you've moved around a lot from the people you played with, your own, your own music and other people's music. And that was already starting then, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, definitely. You were that, part of this kind yeah. of community or this, this scene, it started, I suppose. It, must have, it started in around about 64 mm. or when, whenever the Beatles moved to London because like, I think that was the, the catalyst for ah. the community spirit, mm. if you like, because... You know, we were all on the we were all on the same page. Mm. You know, why are the Beatles moving to London though? What was it about that that made it? Well, difference? I mean, the the Beatles are, are the best, mm. and I think it was important for them to move to London. Mm. And even though Liverpool is a, is a great city, mm. and it spawned a lot of great bands, um, the best music at that time. Well, I, I don't know whether it was the best music or, or not. I mean, it's, it's not not for me to say, but I think. Some of the best music was coming out of London. I mean, all the all the recording studios were in London. You know, top session men were in London. So the Beatles moved down. This, the scene's getting stirred up. You're you've been taken into the in crowd, and then what happens then? Um, I joined the in crowd, and then there was the, and then it became clear that there was a new genre coming in from the West Coast in particular the west coast of uh, the United States, which was kind of like psychedelic music. Um, and I picked up on it. And I know some of the um, some of the early bands, like, for example, the Moody Blues, they picked up on it very, very early on because they made a great psychedelic album, which isn't really um, classed as a psychedelic album, but it is. It's um, The Days of Future Past, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, I forget when that was released. Was that 66 or 67? Do you know off offhand? Uh, I'm sure someone somewhere can tell us. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. anyway, this music, this fantastic music was coming in from uh, from, the, from the States and it just boom, it was like lighting. Was that? So we've talked on this program before about these changes in music. Now, certainly in the States, that music had been very influenced by LSD. And of course, Acid was in, was in London at this mm-hmm. stage. So what, were you getting influenced by the music that was influenced by Acid? Or was, was Acid part of the scene for you as well? Well, b- both. Um, because um, the, the music was so important to me. So I, would, you know, I, I had a great collection of, of records at that time. <clears throat> Excuse me, and uh, but later, um, it was a bit a bit later in '67. I would say about '67. I started to experiment with with LSD with with my friends, mm. the friends tomorrow. You know, we used, mm. <clears throat> we used to uh, take a few trips. <laughs> so the um, let's 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 do that transition from the intro to tomorrow. How did that come about? Um, well, that came about because I I was invited. Um, well, I actually, I've been hanging out with the Granny Takes a Trip crowd because I crowd because I I moved to Beaufort Street um, in Chelsea, which was just around the corner from Granny Takes a Trip, and they they was I, I mean I used to go there whenever I wasn't gigging I'd I'd go along there because it was there was such in innovative creative um, artists you know Nigel Weymouth and Sheila Cohen and John Pierce you know designing great clothes. 
um, Nigel was developing his um, uh, poster skills. He'd already done some uh, done some flyers and and visiting visiting cards and things like that. Um, and so I learned a lot from them, you know, about music and about fashion. Um, and I, then I wanted to pass this on to the to the band. But the, the, how that came about was um, John Pierce said to me, "You've got to see this band, Pink Floyd." He said they're they're absolutely amazing. Um, they look very Dickensian, and mm. uh, you know they have these light, they're using light shows, and their music is very kind of spontaneous. And so I said, "Well, it does sound interesting." So I went along to the UFO Club in early '67. Um, and uh, I was blown away by what was actually happening there. Mm. You know, the um, the atmosphere was just incredible. Um, joysticks burning and uh, films being mm. projected on the walls, light shows, gr- groups of actors, people doing things, you know, in, in the audience, you know. I mean, the UFO became a kind of a, a, the, the epicenter, didn't it, of that scene because it had a bit of everything, fashion, music, yeah. food... Yeah, and all sorts of other things started to come out of it later, even political stuff. Yeah, didn't it? the yeah. people involved in it, right? So, Absolutely. So yeah. that was a big that was a big uh, transformational thing for you, is it? It was um, because I, I said, "Well, this is what I want to be a part of. Mm. This this is the type of music that I want the band to be playing." Um, yeah, so that's that's how it happened, and I, you know, it didn't take long. I mean, I, they were a little bit, um, how do you say? Um, not unreceptive in the beginning, but it, they did become become very receptive. And uh, you know, we bought we bought a, suit, a set of clothes for all of us at Granny Takes the Trip. Keith started to write music. Um, actually, he wrote two songs <coughs> for the Blow Up movie because we were the the Who were originally um, asked to be in the movie Blow Up. They weren't available. Um, the in crowd because we were still the in crowd at that time, um, was then asked to, for, to that, for that spot. We, in fact, we went and had breakfast with um, Antonioni at the Savoy, and uh, it was quite fun. And he said, okay, guys, you, well, he said our, our manager was there, yeah. so he said, yeah, okay, they got the part. Um, we need to do a copy of Steve's guitar, because um, he's going to have to smash it up. Well, any, actually, that's another story. That's another story. Um, but anyway, we got the part. We went along to the the, the set for the filming, um, and Steve refused to smash the guitar up. <laughs> he didn't want to do it. Uh, so that was goodbye to goodbye the in crowd for ah. tomorrow. Then the Yardbirds came in behind us, you know, and took that spot. Right. So uh, you so you changed the music. You changed the name. Personnel and it's, it's then tomorrow is. Oh here. yeah, yeah. If I if I could just say about the the two songs that Keith mm. wrote, Keith wrote two songs, um, "Blow Up" and "Am I Glad to See You." And I was I was knocked out by "Am I Glad to See You." I thought that's a, such a great track, and I encouraged him to write more. I said these these are great songs. You've got to write more. So, you know that was that was how. Keith really got into songwriting. You know. Music became more extended. The jams, you know, the the, the, the breaks, mm. guitar breaks became more extended. Um, and uh, Junior and myself, we we do kind of like, kind of mime audience participation stuff. You know, I'd leave my drums, and we'd leave Steve um, 
Steve jamming away um, and Junior and myself would do kind of like a, a mock fight or something, you know, all in slow motion and, you know, the audience loved it actually. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so that's how we, we, we evolved, we evolved. And I think we should listen to some music. by tomorrow how does that make you feel it makes like me that, feel too. great actually I was just sitting here <laughs> thinking wow there's so many memories just uh, being conjured up in, in my brain <laughs> um, was there a revolution going on I mean it's, this is so it's London it's the sort of late 60s you've got UFO you've got all this stuff happening and well, did it feel like there was it, a, did, it uh, did feel like that there was a revolution going on and it, and, it, and it felt like it would go on forever but it wasn't meant to be mm. What do you think happened? I mean, let's talk well, about I, I that. I think, um, I think money, money uh, issues got um, got in the way. Actually, mm. I mean, I, I I know the money issues broke tomorrow up. Right. Um, you know, so and and we were really tight, as you can tell by that sure. that that track. You know, it was like, I mean, that's probably our crowning glory. That that particular song. Um, and if you listen to the lyrics, it says it all, you know, mm. flower children spreading love. That's a start. Um, you I know, mean, uh, and also uh, uh, a sort of dramatic song as well, wasn't it? With, you know, with spoken word and, 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 and experiment, sonic experimentations and time changes and stuff. There's a, there's a lot going on, right? Yeah, 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 that's, that's right. Why did the, why did the money uh, bring the end to tomorrow? Well, because Keith um, had a... A recording session with with Mark Wirtz, our producer, and they created this um, thing called the Teenage Opera, which actually didn't exist. Um, but they said it did exist, and you know, um, he he recorded an excerpt from the Teenage Opera, which was Grosser Jack, which went right up to the ch the top of the charts. Well, actually, number two, and um, you know, so. Keith was in, then in a very difficult position. Well, the, the first mistake I, th I think uh, as, a, as a group we, we made was we had a meeting um, and we said, okay, this is a, a great opportunity. This is before the record was released, the excerpt from Teenage Opera. We had a meeting um, and we said, okay, let's release this as 
Keith tomorrow. Steve will then release a single because we were all writing stuff um, as Keith as Steve tomorrow. Um, and then Junior and myself, we had a thing called the Aquarian Age. Well, that, that would have been Twink and Junior tomorrow. Twink tomorrow and Junior tomorrow. So, um, but that didn't happen. They, they kind of snuck off and they released it as Keith West. Mm. So that was the first um, clue, if you like, that something else was happening. Um, and, and I think Keith was actually put in a very difficult position because... He had all these kind of like business mm. guys, you know, managers and agents and um, producers, you know, saying, well, you've got to stick with, stick with the, uh, um, the teenage opera because you're going to make a lot of money with that, you know. Yeah. So that got in the way. And, and in fact, what, what also was happening, the, the songs that we were recording for the Tomorrow album were being farmed out to other bands. So... All the songs, you know, I guess half of the songs that are on the Tomorrow album were recorded by other bands and released as singles before the Tomorrow album came out. Right. Which is, okay. you know, which is pretty bad. Well, pretty nasty, if you ask me. Sort of, yeah, stealing your thunder. I mean, it's kind of the old, yeah, old yeah, exactly. story. It's the old, old story. Yeah, yeah, isn't it is. It? Managers and. Yeah, managers and peeling, publishers and, mm. you know. Peeling off one member of the band because yeah. they, you know, they, they, they God, sort of make a lot of money, Keith. God, yeah, these cash registers. <laughs> exactly the opposite of the sort of sentiment of your song revolution, wasn't it? You yeah, know, yeah, completely the opposite. And and the thing is, both both mm. failed. Tomorrow failed, and Keith's career mm. failed as well because I guess it wasn't honest, you know. The sentiment of love, which is in that song, you know, in Flower Children, and um, did you really feel that? I mean, in, in uh, yeah, it, I we, did. We, you were living that. We were living that, and I, and I know Steve was, and I know Junior was. I don't know about Keith, but um, you know, um, yeah, we were living it, you know, at that at that time in '67. And just to go back to around the corner, the UFO Club. And um, so we heard this rumour that you were at the UFO Club playing one night and a certain Jimi Hendrix um, was playing along with you. Is that right? That's right. He, yeah. he came, he was brought down to the club. It was the first night we were, we played there, actually. Um, we, I mean, it was, it was pretty lucky that we did play there that night because the Knack, who were booked to appear that night, cancelled. So we were brought in to cover from them, to cover for them. And um, a mutual friend, a guy called Howard Parker, who was also known as H, he came, uh, he came down there and he brought Jimi Hendrix with him because he was, I think he was a personal road manager or something for him at the time. <clears throat> and um, Dora, we're playing, I saw, I saw Jimi and H walking because everyone was sitting down on the floor in the UFO club watching the band. And I saw Jimi Hendrix and H come in. They came in and they kind of sat down in the middle of the, uh, you know, with with the rest of the uh, the people there. Um, and then came the point in our set where Junior would put his bass down, leave it on feedback, and then start doing his kind of like audience um, participation stuff. Um, Jimmy just took the opportunity, got up, picked up the bass flipped it over because it was a right-handed bass. He's obviously left-handed and just started jamming with us. And so I had Steve Howe on my left, Jimi Hendrix on my right, two of the, probably the greatest guitarists that have, rock guitarists that have uh, walked the planet. 
and me in the middle driving it on. Mm. It was great. It was a wonderful experience. Like we played for about 20 minutes and, uh, you know, it was very, very exciting. Did you communicate with Hendrix? When the experience was formed, Mitch Mitchell was, was my best friend at that time. So I knew all of um, what was going on with uh, his audition. And he, Mitch come in and he said, I'm, I'm not sure if I want to do this, Twink. You know, <laughs> he was a bit doubtful about doing the, the Jimi Hendrix experience, uh, experience. But I'm glad he did. I'm glad he took the job because it, they made great music together. Um, so, yeah, I knew Jimmy quite, you know, quite well. Obviously, I knew Mitch uh, much better. But I was on the uh, guest list for all the early Jimi Hendrix shows. I, you know, I was Bag of Nails and all these other mm. places. Can you give us a little bit of insight into him? I mean, just, just some personal, uh, your personal experience of what he was like. Because obviously it's well, difficult the, with some Hendrix because he's become eclipsed by the legend of Hendrix, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think everyone understands that, that he was a very, very warm... Um, generous human being, you know. He was un- unassuming. He was he was not a big head, you know. He was down to earth and and very sensible. Mm. I remember at the end of that set at the UFO Club, he was sitting on the floor down by the bass amp, and he looked up at me and he said, uh, "Is this love, Twink?" <laughs> to which you replied, "I didn't say anything." Just smiled and carried on. Love it. <laughs> um, so what about next for you then? So uh, tomorrow is kind of dissolved in sort of some financial acrimony. Um, yeah. But you're still... Well, I, I, I cut a record with um, Junior, the bass player, yeah. uh, 10,000 Words in a Cardboard Box, which was produced by Mark Wirtz. Um, only a few copies were ever printed, I think, because... Well, I mean, I know John Peel played it, but um, it wasn't. There was no record company support, no management support, so it really kind of just, um, you know, it, it just came out. You know. um, I think we should listen to it. Okay.
tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, the, um, there's some great session guys on there, by the way. Nicky Hopkins and uh, Clem Catini. Um, I remember going into the session that, um, you know, uh, the Mark Wirtz session to do the backing recording for that track. And because uh, I, I, I was kind of, kind of quite pally with um, Clem Catini. I'd seen him around quite a bit. And um, he said, hey, Twink, do you want to play drums on this? So I said, no, I'll leave it to you, you know, because he's, he's such a great, great drummer, you know. Um, then we recorded the, uh, the B-side. Mark had um, recorded a piece of music. The B-side was called Good Wizard Meets Naughty Wizard. Um, and uh, <laughs> great songs. Mark, Mark, Mark Wurtz had recorded a piece of music, and myself and Junior just ad libbed a kind of an, an interchange, you know, mm-hmm. talking between the two of us. I was a good wizard, he was a naughty wizard, and we we're just having a, a, a little chat, you know. And, and but it was completely ad lib, you know, that was fun doing. <laughs> so, and then what happens? Um, well, myself and Junior uh, were planning to put a band together, obviously, um, and we'd been writing quite a bit together. And we one day we went up to the um, the Pretty Things and the Tomorrow um, booking agency, which was called the Brian Morrison Agency, and um, we and we just put called in just to keep them, you know, to tell them what we were doing, you know, what, where we are with our project, you know. Um, and Dick Taylor was there of the pretty things and he said uh, Twink and he looked very agitated and perplexed I said, he said Twink Skip's left the band we're going we're going to Rome this weekend can you can you help us out so I said sure I can help you out so that's how I became a member of the Pretty Things. I stayed with them for 18 months, in fact. First gig in Rome, nice. First, yeah, it was beautiful. It was a great time, yeah. The Piper Club. <coughs> and you recorded with them? I did, yeah. I, record, well, I carried on recording. Uh, Skip had recorded three tracks for SF Sorrow, and I recorded the the rest of the album with the Pretty Things. Should we listen to uh, Sorrow is Born?
brilliant. What's that like doing that? I mean, that's a famous track. I mean, but um, yeah, SF Shore is kind of like a strange monster, really, because uh, it's, it's kind of taken on a life of its own. But um, and, and I appreciate its merits. I mean, but there are, there's, there's other music which, mm. which, you know, means a lot more to me. Yeah. You mentioned then, I mean, your first show with them was in Rome, and then you're playing all the time, aren't you? You're touring. Well, from, from then on, it was like non-stop. You know? mm. And that's how the, the, the Aquarian Age thing got put on the back burner, because I, I still intended to, 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 to carry on with that, with, with Junior. But you know, John, John Junior, um, he, he just gave up waiting, you know, mm. eventually, because, uh, like I said, I, I became so involved with the pretty things we started working on the soundtrack to uh, What's Good for the Goose film. Normal Wisdom. Normal yeah. Wisdom, yeah. Um, and I then love that. I, you move from Antonini to uh, Normal Wisdom, you know, blow up to um, What's Good <laughs> for the Goose. That's a great <laughs> was, move. Well, you know, Norman was, was a hero of mine from when I was when I was younger. So and a huge star at the time, right? I mean, he was he was a big big it, he was it, big business, wasn't he? For, yeah. Um, uh, it wasn't a good choice of script for him. I don't think what's good for the goose myself, but 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 his his early films, you know, I was a kid, which were just great. They really were funny, uh, so it was great great working with him and uh, meeting him. You know. <laughs> Give us a little glimpse into that life of touring. Then at that time, um, you know, you sort of uh, continually playing playing shows and stuff, and living at the back of a van and hotel rooms, right? Yeah, well, ho- hotels, pretty, th- pretty things were were um, were, were a, a kind of like a higher level than say tomorrow was. Maybe not in so much in '67, but they certainly maintained a level of um, um, you know ho- getting good hotels, getting good gigs. And uh, tomorrow only played, I think. Uh, I don't think we ever played abroad. Oh yeah, we played Paris once. I think we just went abroad mm-hmm. once. But with the pretty things of going to Germany, uh, Holland, um, Italy, France, you know, and, uh, and it was all always, um, you know, we were always well taken care of, picked up at the airport and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, they, they sort of maintained a high, high profi- higher profile, if you like. So why did it only last 18 months for you? Oh, well, that's, that's a, another story. I, um, I guess, I guess... We all became kind of disillusioned with the the non um, success of the album because right. when the album was released, there was again there was no management support, no real management support. EMI just kind of you know just did a couple of um, pages of uh, in, interview. I'm sorry, advertisements. There was no push. Um, and then Dick Taylor left, so we had to find a new lead guitarist, who was great, by the way. He's a great replacement, a guy called Vic, Vic Unit, um, who came from um, Edgar Broughton. He was part of, the, uh, part of Edgar Broughton's band. Um, and he played later on, um, he didn't play on SF Sorrow, but he played on Parachute, which is another great album. I, actually, I prefer Parachute to SF Sorrow as, a, as an album musical album um so 
Oh yeah, where were we? I've got lost track of it. Well, no, we were just talking about why you left. Uh, why, why, the, oh, the, the, really? oh know, yeah. Well, it, 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 all, it, it Yeah, I, I kind of, I started getting in, in heavily involved with um, the counterculture in the sense of the revolution. You know, has got has got to happen now. You know, and we really we really have to make it happen now. And I kind of, I kind of, I, I think that ruffled a few feathers in the band because the band was more of a like a, a musical band, and, and and I was still calling for revolution. Um, Tell and, us about that. I mean, what did that mean for you at the time, revolution? Well, it it, mean, it meant really breaking down all the, um, you know, the control that the police had on things, for example, um, because, I mean, they'd, they'd be, you know, going into the UFO club, going into the Middle Earth, you know, and just trying to bust people, you know, for, you know, a few uh, little little bits of hash, you know, which was a, a totally total waste of resources, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, so I mean, there's a because there's part of that scene, you know, which was like a the the seeds of activism was coming out of that too, wasn't mm -hmm. it? The um, and there's the whole thing with release, you know, the the uh, the, the the yeah, it seemed it, it, set it, up to help it, people who've been like Hopkins had been had been busted and stuff, and so you, you were motivated by that as well as the music and the scene, the fashion. So the actual activist, political aspect of it for you was important, right? Yeah, 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 oh, definitely. I mean, I I became very friendly with uh, Mick Farron at the time, um, who I, who I I, th I thought was a, was a great character. He had a great sense of humour, and he didn't he, you know he didn't mind taking on the the fuzz, you know. Um, so we became very close. In fact, I recorded um, the Carnivorous Circus. I played drums with him, um, you know, on that that al his solo album when he left the Deviants, or when the De the Deviants actually kicked him out uh, of the band. And it's funny how that all happened. It all came to a head with Mick and the Deviants, um, S Steve Took and Tyrannosaurus Rex, and me with the Pretty Things. I was backstage at the Isle of Wight, um, 1969. I think it was the Dylan, the Dylan 1969 show, and I was backstage with, um, hanging out with uh, Noel Redding and Fat Mattress and Jane Fonda, and I'm getting really, really drunk, and I'm getting, and I'm more drunk, getting more drunk, and um, we went on stage, and during the first number, I fell over backwards, <laughs> off my drums. Luckily. The pretty thing had a, an excellent drummer who played keyboards, John Povey. <laughs> he used to play drums for Burn Elliott and the Fenmen, who I saw in 1963 performing, and they were they were great. So he he could cover for me, but that was it. I was out of the band. So he so, left his keyboards, rushed over to the drum stool, yeah, yeah, took sat over down from you, and carried carried yeah. on. So, um, so that that was the kind of uh, turning point. You you fall yeah, off your yeah, drum that stool. Yeah, that was that was that was it. But it was. Uh, it was interesting because I'd also just recorded um, my first solo album, Think Pink. And there I was with, with Mick and, and Steve, and we'd all, been, we'd all been kicked out of our, you know, bands for our activism. And there we were. We were like, well, what are we going to do? <laughs> so we decided to form the Pink Fairies. Um, and we did a gig, and I think it was in Manchester, where we just, I mean, we had no rehearsals, we had no equipment. <laughs> we just went up there, and I, I, in fact, I, I really don't remember what, what we actually did, because I was pretty stoned and drunk mm. for that. 
Um, and I think Steve was as well, if my memory serves me right. But anyway, so that was a, so I, I, I kind of drew the line at that point. And I said, look, this isn't going to work um, in, this, in this combination of myself, Steve, and Mick. So I've, I contacted the rest of the guys in um, Canada, Canada uh, the rest of the deviants um, in Canada, and asked them to come back and form a band with me. They agreed to do that, and we call ourselves the Pink Fairies. So before we uh, go on to that epic uh, period, let's hear a track of yours from Runabout Then, a solo track, Twink, uh, You Reach for the Stars. Just a dream away When the world was yours Only games to play You reach for the stars isn't it that sort of cosmic folk and I mean noticeable on that is that there's no drumming it's it's just guitar it's just guitar and, and voice yeah and and lots of uh, vocal effects <laughs> which I love I mean I love the echo on on, mm. on my voice can you remember recording that uh, yeah I can remember recording it yeah it was mm. in um, in Hornsey in a studio called Light Lighting Wizard Studios and there's a couple of versions of that track that appear later, right? It's yeah, there's um, there's uh, one with uh, a band called the uh, well, it's called it's Twink and the Technicolor Dream, um, and I recorded that about five years ago with them. They wanted to re- re- record that, and uh, it's quite a nice version actually. We did, but that that still has a certain magic qu- mm. quality about it, which I love. Mm. And we were talking earlier, actually, before we started, about the sometimes the magic of the demos, isn't it? The rough yeah. cut is actually it captures something that it's impossible to <coughs> recapture uh, with the highly produced version of the track, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I know, that's right. Mm. Yeah. 
Well, we were talking about that. <coughs> Excuse me. We talked about that earlier. Uh, but we, I don't think we're going to go into that. Mm, mm. But um, <laughs> let's go back then. So uh, Deviants coming from Canada, uh, the Pink Fairies. Uh, let's start that chapter. That, that was really the catalyst for m myself and Mick falling out because <clears throat> um, I think Mick resented the fact that I called these guys back and um, you know formed the Pink Fairies with them. Um, and excluded him and and Steve Took, you know, so that you know we we fell out because of that. Tell us about the Pink Fairies with this, you know, these this this new cre creature because it's a different sound as well, isn't it? And everything starts to change. Yeah, um, well, I, I it was it was um, Paul Rudolph's guitar playing. He was he was from the West Coast actually, but a bit further north. He was came from uh, um, British Columbia um, on Vancouver Island. Um, but he had um, moved here to play guitar with the Deviants, and immediately I saw his, you know, his style and his sound, and heard his his guitar sound. I wanted to work with him, but but that was much earlier than when we, than we actually did. So it was kind of uh, it was it was nice to eventually be able to get him back and uh, and and work with him. Mm. And it sort of took off a bit, didn't it? And then yeah, it took off. Yeah, that's right. And you guys start to. There's some amazing uh, uh, clips of you uh, performing. I think it's in Paris actually, and um, I think it's a Paris TV show or something. Uh, rather wonderful. I think you're standing up playing oh, no, drums. No, that, that's the Roundhouse in ah. Dagenham. Okay. Yeah, you're standing up playing drums. Yeah, because so, um, uh, my my drum head had broken and the. Um, um, the, the road manager was was changing the uh, changing the drum head, so I'm standing up playing. I didn't notice him. He must have been down there on the floor. But um, yeah. uh, you well, look you super can, groovy. You, yeah. kind of, you, you dance about a little bit. Yeah, you know. you're, I thought it was part of the act. It's super <laughs> groovy. I mean, you were looking super groovy. It has to be said. I mean, uh, an extremely, an extremely. Uh, oh, those were the days. Uh, extremely. <laughs> come on, you're still a still a good looking chap. But, the, Thank but, you. but, uh, but um, you, you know, you were you were you were looking well, cool. It was a it was a, it's a really great uh, clip actually. I love that and. Uh, mm -hmm. Drum sounds is, is super duper. I think that's about the, I think that's the only clip that exists, mm. and and that isn't the original lineup. Okay, that's the I think it was nineteen seventy four, or seventy three. Um, uh, not not sure exactly the date there, um, and it has Larry Wallace, may he rest in peace. He just passed away recently, um, on lead guitar. All right, at that time, whereabouts in London were you living then? Um, I was living in Ealing, Ealing mm. Broadway, just mm. off of just off moved Broadway, west. Yeah. I think I, I think I read somewhere that the um, there was this thing called the Pink Fairies Rock and Roll Club. Is that right? Uh, no, the original um, concept of the Pink Fairies, which was when, when we were all still in our bands, was the Pink Fairies Motorcycle Club, an all-star rock and roll band. Who was, was, and that, who, who was the membership well, they, of that club? Everybody was, everybody was involved. Mm. Um, but, but myself, Steve Took, and uh, Mick Farron were really the, uh, the, the, the masters, if mm. you like, of the club. Yeah. But at this time, I mean, you're, you're, you're completely embedded in the London scene, so a lot of the other bands of the, of the underground at the time were mates of yours, weren't you? And you, you know, you're, you're part of this kind of, uh, I suppose... We've talked before on this program about it. It was a very small thing. Was it? it was a quite a short period of time. It was a small thing, and it's and I suppose it's become 
you know, a, a legendary time, I suppose, mm -hmm. those, those, those few years. But it still felt like a quite a close community to you, did it? Um, well, when I moved to Notting Hill Gate, it, came, it became apparent that there was a, uh, a, a strong community spirit there. And I, and I still get the same vibe when I go back there, you know, but uh, <coughs> um, I, I think there was I think there was an even bigger, you know, going back to like the 67 when I was saying earlier about, you know, when the Beatles moved to London, and I think there was an even bigger community which, which embraced the whole of London. And then within that, we had these pockets which kind of mushroomed. Um, you know, and went off in uh, off into tangents, but um, and and there we have in like 1960, I think it was 69 that I moved to Notting Hill Gate. Um, there was that that pocket, mm. you know, where whereas and, and, and the other the other um, overall, uh, well, I would say was with the blanket community spirit had kind of disappeared. Mm. It was it was these small mushrooms mm -hmm. of activity you know it did seem to move west didn't it i mean you got that kind of ufo middle earth thing happening in central london and then there's the sort of chelsea thing you know a bit earlier but by the sort of late 60s early 70s it takes root doesn't it in west london you get this kind of whole thing which is a bit more political as well yeah 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 yeah, so yeah, yeah definitely. free school friends and magazine and international times and uh you know yeah so, right about this time, um, then you take off for Morocco, don't you? Um, oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I had I, I, an incredibly um, traumatic experience for me surrounding a relationship that I was in. And I couldn't really get my, my head around it. So I left the Pink Fairies with the intention of returning Although I didn't say to the band, look, uh, I said, look, I'm, 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 I'm going to Morocco. And that's what I said to them. I said, but, I'm, but I'm coming back. I didn't say that. But that was my intention. So I went to Morocco and, um, to chill out for a bit. Um, and, but it was too hot at that time. Um, so I went up to Portugal and sort of chilled out there. Then I went to um, uh, northern France, Caen, around Caen, Normandy, and then back to the UK, and I moved to Cambridge. Um, but, and, then, and then I went to see the Pink Fairies perform in Powers Square. They were doing a, uh, a benefit there. <clears throat> uh, and they'd changed. You know, they were performing without me, obviously. Um, but they'd, cha they'd changed. Um, they still had my drums, so I said, well, just ask for my drums. They said, well, what are you going to do with those now? So I said, well, I'm going to learn to play them. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but Russell uh, had actually, but Russell Hunter, that's the other drummer with the Pink Fairies, had been using the dub, oh, that's me, okay. uh, had been using double drums. Um, so he'd been using my bass drum as a, you know. Anyway, they gave me my drums and I went off back up to Cambridge um, and I started playing with a bank with the last minute that put together Boogie Band in Cambridge. Before we, <laughs> before we move on to them, let's just have a quick, uh, a little bit of Pink Fairies, do it. Yeah, do it. Well, don't think about it. Well, all you got to do is do it. 
I mean, that's brought it. It's quite a change of direction, isn't it? And uh, from the, that more gentle, bucolic, trippy, psychedelic love yeah. stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. Like, well, I, you know, don't think about it. Don't write about it. Do it. Well, I can explain that. You could do. Yeah. Um, do it. I, myself and Jamie Mandelkow had written to John and Yoko at Bag Productions and asked them to write a song for the Pink Fairies because we just signed a deal with um, Polydor Records. And we thought... They'll, they're gonna, they'll do it. They'll, they'll write for us, and we're really excited and stuff, um, because we're all on the same page, you know. But anyway, we got a form. A couple of weeks later, we got a form letter back saying, oh, "John and Yoke, I'm afraid, are much too busy." <laughs> you know, it wasn't from them, but it was from someone in the office. You know, I was on my way to the studio to to record the B side. Uh, a B well, side for the snake because we'd already recorded the snake um, and I wrote that on the way to the studio because I was really angry it comes across yeah are you aware of sorry are you aware of White Denim the band now White, White Denim White Denim from Austin Texas they are superb they're one of the best live bands definitely I didn't put two and two together before but they've uh, they're indebted slightly Oh, really? really good though fantastic band in their own right they are fantastic you love them but I mean it's interesting isn't it because that track it sort of it pre pre-visions quite a bit that's come later I mean I can hear in that a bit of the acid days of the hot wind coming yeah. later but also punk right I mean well, yeah, well, I, mean, I played this to you know Jordan who was um, involved with well, she was kind of she worked at sex and she ah. was very much involved with the Sex Pistols. Mm. She was around my flat one day, and I, and I played her that track, and she went, that sounds like the Sex Pistols. <laughs> <laughs> and it does. It does, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and sort of attitude-wise, it's a bit, there's a bit yeah, of that yeah. in there as well, isn't there? Uh, I mean, brilliant stuff. So you, you, you've gone up to Cambridge, and um, there's a, this is a, I know this is a footnote in your uh, uh, career, Twink, but it's a sort of interesting one because... Um, in these programs, one of the figures that comes up time and time again as the the dream of the love years starts to darken is Barrett. And, mm -hmm. you know, he seems to sort of uh, represent somehow that kind of the, the dream the dream going wrong somehow. And then it's mm, there. Yeah. You met him there. Or maybe you already knew him, did you, or something? Well, we, 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 in 67, um, our paths crossed often because... Uh, we were on the same bill mm. together. We played the um, the Savile Theatre together, um, Brian Epstein's theatre. Uh, one Sunday evening, we played lots of festivals. So, so, so we were acquaintances. But in '72, um, we became friends because um, Sid was actually out looking for people. Well, he was actually he he came to two shows. Mm that the last minute put together Boogie Band um, did, uh, performed at. Um, and he came to check myself and Jack Monk out because he was, he, I guess, he thought we might be the best musicians in Cambridge. Uh, and he agreed that we were. So he asked us to form stars with him. So that's what we did. But he was, he was great. And, you know, I, mean, you know, I, under, I can understand exactly where... Sid's head was at, you know, it's, he wasn't crazy. And pe people would say, you know, he's a crazy lunatic, he took too much out. 
It's not as simple as that. It's mm. not as simple as that. Tell us more, actually, because I think that's an important uh, counter story to tell to that kind of well, I'm the, gonna, the, I'm, the cliche about Barrett. Actually, was because he, he, of yeah, course he 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 become very famous, fallen out. You know, in, had been through a very difficult time. Left Pink Floyd, kind of disappeared. Did his solo albums, which didn't very do very much, and sort of retreated to Cambridge, hadn't he? So, well, you know, I, I was very much in the same position as he was, like leaving the Pink Fairies, mm. wanting to wanting to go back, but never achieving that. You know, so we were both in the same car. But unfortunately, I think Sid had was a lot more sensitive than perhaps I was, you know, so it, he, it took him into a, 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 deeper, a deeper space, deeper dark space, which, you know, he didn't deserve to be in, in, in that space. But he was trying to get out of that by forming stars. And and he he did. I mean, he, we we had some wonderful times together. We had some, we did some great shows. Unfortunately, the one show that was um, uh, was bad for us was reviewed in the in the the trade press. You know, I think Melody Maker did a, a very very poor review of of one show, mm. uh, which was our, which was definitely our worst show. Sid had cut his finger while we were playing. We were having trouble with the amplifications. We were set up too far apart. You know, um, I mean, yeah, I know it's like making excuses, but if the other shows had been reviewed, mm. maybe it would have been a different story. Did he took that very personally, did he? You know? He did, took it very personally. Mm. Well, he, 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 he was called into London um, by his kind of publisher, um, stroke manager, and I, I think he was told to leave the band because the review was was not good. You know, so I think he was told. And he came back to my house uh, in Cambridge and said, "I don't want to play anymore," and that was it. And, and, he, never, and he never did. He never did. No, mm. I saw him one time after that. About six months later, he was going up the escalators in Harrods, and I was going down the escalator. I said, like, "Hello, Sid." <laughs> That was the last time I saw him. Mm. But I mean, give it, so give us the give us the alternative story because I think it is a bit of a cliche, isn't it, about what happened to him? So, what's your view on on the way that it all fell out for him? I think it was just like the the rug was just pulled from right out, uh, you know, from underneath his feet, and uh, he didn't really know how to deal with it. You know, that, I think it's that simple. Mm. You know. And what was the reason you think he never came back after that? He just didn't. He lost the confidence or something. Or well, after after stars. After stars, well, I think that was, that was yeah. I, th- I think I think so. Not 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 necessarily lost confidence. I think he just said, "Well, that's it. I'm going to concentrate on painting now." Mm. You know, I think that's it. You know, he'd been going. He'd been trying for so long. You know, to get back on track. What about you? How did you get back on track? How did you sort of return to London well, and the scene? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I what I did do um, was I started my own record label in 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 uh, mid in the mid eighties, and I think that was um, because I didn't really didn't know much about the business side of things. So I thought, well, I'm, I need to find out a little bit more about how things work mm-hmm. within the business, and that, that was uh, I think that helped. I started my own record label, right. You played with Hawkwind for a while? 
Yeah, I did. I get used to get um, a phone call from Doug Smith, their manager. Um, he'd say, um, Terry, Ollis is, um, Terry Ollis can't make it tonight. Can you sit in with Hawkwind tonight? You know, so yes, I'd say, yeah, of course. <laughs> the, the ever-revolving cast of Hawkwind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sort of Hawkwind review, isn't it? It's like thousands of people pass through that band. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you're, um, uh, things have changed for you, but I mean, you're, you're, you're playing, you're collaborating, you're setting up a record label, and, and what else is going on for you? Let's let's forward wind a bit, of course, because the, another big thing uh, which happened for you, maybe a bit later, but amongst your travels, is that you convert to Islam. Oh, yeah, that's right. So um, tell us about that. Well, uh, what can I say about, apart from the fact that I've always been interested in kind of, you know, spiritual um, organizations, if you like. And I and I tried and looked and studied different things, you know, like um, the Hare Krishna thing, you know, the um, Christianity, Catholicism, Freemasonry, magic, you know, all that kind of stuff. I always find it very interesting. And um, the Divine Light Mission. In fact, I took I took uh, Peter Green along to the uh, Divine Light Mission one one day. But that's another story. When was that? Well, that was in nineteen. I'm just trying to pinpoint it. it must have been about nineteen seventy. That before his big falling yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, it was quite quite some time before. Mm. And um, yeah, so um, so anyway, no one ever suggested Islam to me. Um, and then I think about 10, 10, about 10 years ago, I was uh, in Morocco again because I'd been going and coming for years. Not, I mean, I, I always loved to hear the Adan, you know, the call to prayer. I thought that was great here at five times a day. But it never clicked, in, you know. Um, so anyway, uh, and I always, because you, you can't actually go into a mosque in Morocco unless you're a Muslim. So, uh, and I always like peek into the, the mosques and, you know, be interested from that point of view. Um, but I never sort of started studying. And about 10 years ago, I started to read about it. And I said, well, this looks good. And I've always wanted um, something, a practical way for me to express my, my gratitude for the things that, you know, mm. that are given to me freely, you know, like the air that I breathe, the food that I eat, the water that I drink, you know, all these very basic things which we all take for granted, you mm. know. And that was it. And I started to, you know, embrace I did a, a shahada, which is where you, uh, um, where you, you, you find an imam to, to do that with you. And I did the shahada in Colchester. Mm. And I became Muslim. And it was, it was great. Are you still in Colchester? I am actually in Mark's Day, which is just outside of Colchester. But, um, but I, I have a house in um, Marrakesh. Mm. My wife and my daughter live live there. You have this extraordinary life. I mean, we haven't even dug into the fact that um, you know you've also, apart from that normal wisdom film, what's good for the goose, you've been in Love Joy, David Copperfield, actor. Yeah, um, but uh, well, a walk on actor, <laughs> <laughs> just a walk on. <laughs> and also, you know, producing music all the time, producing more albums on your solo name, producing more albums with other people. And um, we're going to play something from your brand new album, um, which is wonderfully pink, psychedelic pink here. Which track are we going to hear? 
Um, we're going to play, uh, I think we will play Ain't Got a Clue, which is a song that my father wrote, um, amongst other songs that he wrote in 1964, may it, possibly 65, but I'm pretty sure it was 64 that he wrote it. And this is the first, well, it's, actually, it's not the first recorded version. I, I produced a band from Colchester in 1964, a band called The Gatemouth, and they, rec they did a version of this which has been lost. You know, the, the acetates have been lost and the, the tapes have been lost. So this is the, um, the, f the final version, if you like. So this is it? Last year um, in Canada with um, a band called Moths and Locusts and Heavy Friends. And uh, yes, I, I like it. So this is Twink, Think Pink, from Think Pink 4, and it's Ain't Got a Clue by Twink's dad. We're coming to an end, and Paul's got a funny story he was going to ask you about. What were you talking about earlier, Paul? Oh, the John Peel quote. Yeah. The, it just makes me giggle. It's the white bicycle quote. It was, uh, my wife's bisexual. Oh, yeah. It, was the, uh, it just made me giggle, and it was just one of the little facts that's stuck in my brain. It's useless, so I apologise, but no, it does make me giggle each time. And it's, yeah. Uh, it's kind of ruined the song for me a little bit. Yeah, I know. Well, I, some, actually, some, someone was reviewing that in, in uh, Melody Maker or, or NME or one of those, no. and they actually said that. They put it in. They right. put that in. They said, well, I keep hearing this new, new, new track by Tomorrow with My White Bicycle as... Well, yeah. bisexual. Yeah, no, it's great. It's giving it a new <laughs> twist for me. That's right. <laughs> of course, that sends us off onto a whole thing about misheard lyrics in songs yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, those people from that time, I mean, obviously, quite a few people are dead now, uh, Twink, but yeah, um, you're very right. much alive. But I mean, are you still in contact with people, Steve Howe and all those people from um, right back uh, in time? Only, only when the royalty issues come up. You know. <laughs> We're not, we don't hang out together, uh, much as I'd love to, because I think he's a great guitarist. He's one of the, uh, the greatest musicians that I've worked with. Uh, I think he's, he's just brilliant. In fact, you know, I prefer his guitar playing in the Tomorrow Days than in, in, in his later years. But, uh, but no, we, 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 we talk occasionally. When you look back, um, and I'm sure you don't look back through uh, pink or rose-coloured spectacles uh, <laughs> uh, to that time that those sort of brief years in the sort of mid to late 60s early 70s and that whole countercultural scene you know the uh, London underground uh, what are your feelings about it now looking back well 
looking back, I feel that um, it was kind of a lost opportunity, if you like. I mean, the, the way the world is now, um, it's in, in a terrible um, state of affairs. Um, and I think if, perhaps if we had persevered, um, things might have been different. But I think maybe we altered the course of uh, things just a couple of degrees, but, you know, it, it would have been better for everybody if, if it had carried on. Mm. Yeah. And um, how has London changed, do you think, since then? Well, I still get the same the same vibe when I come to London. I still, I was just walking through the West, you know, through uh, Soho today, and it's just, you know, it's still the same, <laughs> same for me, you know? Mm. I mean, obviously some places have, have, have gone, um, but yeah, I still, I still love London. So we're going to finish with uh, one of Twink's, Twink's tracks, which is mad, actually, but it's um, the psychedelic punkaroo. Mm. Just tell us a few words about that, Twink. Actually, this is dedicated to uh, my uh, my pal Sid, Sid Barrett. Um, if you listen to the lyrics carefully, you'll, you'll, you'll understand why, but... Uh, the amazing countercultural legend, drummer, songwriter, musician John Alder, sometimes known as Mohammed Abdoah and best known possibly as Twink. You can check out more of Twink's work and legacy at the website thinkpink50th.com. I'm Stephen Coates of the Bureau of Lost Culture. You can check out more about us at bureauoflostculture.com. See you next time for more stories of forgotten, half-remembered, lovely, strange funny countercultural 